Dear listeners, just a quick note before we get started, we now have a Patreon page. If you've been enjoying these episodes and would like to show your support, please visit patreon.com slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson to support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, hello again. This is Dad talking again, because we're going to talk today about a truly weird little fiction. <laughs> I assume it's fiction. I don't think it's revelation. I don't think it's actually a transport into heaven where the authoress witnessed these events. I assume this is a work of creative imagination, but let's let the author tell us about her weird little novelette or vignettes or Whatever. The, I mean, I'm lost as a literary critic. My genre abilities are, are, are just exhausted here. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, that's a promising beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun to read, but I don't, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't understand it, I guess I could say. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Dad, I have to say, as the author, I'm not sure I understand it either. But um, let let's say this this sort of felt like something that was given to me, and I shepherded it along. And if it has any value, I I I'm glad for that. And if not, it can be quietly consigned to the dustbin of history. But anyway, b- before listeners go mad wondering what on earth we're talking about, this is in reference to my new book called Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Thresholds. The subtitle tells you uh, most of what's going on here. But let me start with this. So there's a f- the first story in the book is called This Is Your Body. And it tells of a very disagreeable woman who on her deathbed, despite a lifetime of alienation and estrangement from the church and everyone in her life, asks her son to bring her a pastor so that she can receive Holy Communion. And the moment the pastor puts the uh, the wine-soaked wafer in her mouth, she dies. Uh, then the story is at the pearly gates of heaven, and the Lord Christ is there, and um, she demands entrance because she says that she has his um, body and blood in her mouth and if she doesn't let him if he doesn't let her in then for all of eternity he will be separated from part of his own self and the lord laughs and says even in the church i have not found such faith come in lay down your burdens and be at rest and she does and uh, that is the only story in the collection that starts on earth. The rest of them just pick up immediately at the pearly gates of heaven. That's why it has the title it does. So, Dad, the reason why this is the first story, and the first story is, in fact, the first story I wrote, is because um, a very different elderly woman in my first congregation back in New Jersey uh, was shut in. I believe she had Alzheimer's. Um, her family actually discouraged me from visiting her um, because there she would not have been responsible. But she was still living at home. And then one day I got a call from her daughter saying that um, she was dying and that she knew that her mom would have wanted to receive communion one last time before she died. So I went to the home and I had a, you know, a, a Lord's Supper service with the daughter and this dying woman. And I saturated the wafer with wine. I put it in her mouth. I think I then gave it to her daughter to consume since the woman was not capable of consuming it. And dad, within 10 seconds of the Lord's body and blood touching her mouth, the woman died. And I was floored at her 
faith and determination that she was not going to die until she had had the Lord's Supper one last time. And then the second she had it, she was done. So that was <laughs> one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had as a pastor. So obviously, um, in in my story, I've changed the details quite a bit. I have no reason to think that the real woman that I dealt with was the slightest bit disagreeable, quite the contrary. Um, but I was just struck by that um, that need and confidence for the Lord's body and blood. So I, I wrote this story, and then it just sat there for a long time. Um, but I guess... Over time, I began to get more and more irritated at the way I heard heaven talked about. <laughs> so, so, Dad, why don't you tell us just what would you say is the average American Christian idea about heaven? When I die, I fly up to see the big guy in the sky. Right. It's bodiless, right? So the first thing is you, you shed your body. You're just a soul. Right. Fly, fly away, yep. Yep, exactly. Um, like in New Yorker cartoons, it, you're it's like floating on clouds, right? There's there's one gate, and it's usually Saint Peter blocking the way, and you know checking to see if you've done enough good things, and you try to bargain your way in. But you know there there are other things too, like there are these popular books like The Five People You Meet in Heaven or Heaven Is for Real, which purports to be a little boy's near death experience. People love near death experiences and the long tunnel of light and so forth. So I guess over time, I just, and I guess the other part of it too is uh, discovering the actual book of Revelation. And that's where we get the pearly gates image from. So in, in Revelation 21 and 22, we have the description of the new Jerusalem. And so that was the other piece that came together with frustration at how basically neoplatonic and like full of harps and angels and clouds and annoying the most imagery about heaven was. Whereas in Revelation, the city that descends has 12 gates, uh, symbolically there for the 12 tribes and for the 12 apostles. And the gates are always open. They never, ever shut. And the uh, foundation of each of them is a pearl. That's why we get the expression pearly gates. But actually, it, yeah. And then there's like this... Um, no, sorry, the gates are made of pearl, but the foundation of each gate is a precious stone, which correlates to one of the jewels on the ephod of the priest in Exodus. So there's just all this very interesting um, intertestamental and interbiblical detail that's very rich um, in Revelation. And of course, Revelation follows on, you know, the destruction finally of of uh, Satan and, and the beast and the dragon and all the bad guys and everything. Um, but the the imagery is still it's of the the crucified and risen Lord. And so I guess what I was trying to do with these stories in the first place is to give a um, an aesthetic portrait of heaven that actually had something to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and not with hangover cherubs and um, immortal souls that still pervade our, our popular cultural notions of the afterlife, another term I hate. Yes, yeah, so you're you're trying to take on a cultural cliche and deconstruct it by telling uh, these odd little stories that you've collected from a, your midway through life and your pastoral experiences and elsewise, right? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. You know, the other uh, the idea that Peter is the gatekeeper is from 
the book Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says that Peter has the keys of the kingdom. And that, of course, right. in Roman Catholic theology, of course, that was the, the, the papacy, the pope, has the, as the successor of Peter, has the keys to the kingdom. But no matter about that, in heaven, it's Peter who opens or shuts the gate to let people in or out. Of course, you challenge that a little bit by having this nasty woman it be admitted and some surprising people get admitted and some surprising people don't get admitted. Tell us a couple of those stories. Well, yeah, so this is another way. I was trying to pick up on some actual gospel encounters that people have with Jesus. Again, the the heavenly judgment or heavenly encounter with Christ just seems, as we popularly hear it, seems to have nothing to do with what actually happens in, in Jesus' ministry on earth. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to do, do again, is, is tell stories at, at, you know, the gates of judgment that actually have something to do with with that Jesus story. So for example, let me let me uh well the one one of the ones I liked was about there were t- two stories that kind of complement each other. One story was about the Lord as a, the divine robber who steals away our sins. Mm, right, uh, right. You know, which is a motif I've used in my own theology, the divine thief. Uh, and there's another one about a a, a person who just can't let go of her suitcase filled with her idolatrous treasures. And she can enter into heaven, but then the suitcase gets left behind. And so she goes back out before through the gates to get the suitcase, and she's torn back and forth. So tell us a little bit about those two stories and how they play off each other. Yeah, sure. So, so obviously... Uh... <laughs> There, there's all sorts of challenges going on here. So one, like you said, is that it's not just Peter guarding one single gate and all the gates are open and all the apostles there and more than 12 are there. And there's even a couple female apostles. I'm thinking of Junia and Mary Magdalene, though I don't identify them by name. And sometimes it's it's the Lord himself. But another thing I'm doing, which will please some and displease others, is that um, there are people who don't go in. Um, but by and large, it's not because or I would say entirely in my stories, it's not because the Lord will not let them in. It's because they refuse to go in on their own steam. So the story you mentioned, the suitcase, I, I think it's actually a man, not a woman. But the uh, the person arrives at the gates of heaven very, very pleased to go in and saying to himself, there's nothing I've ever wanted more than to enter into here. But then the apostle says, well, uh, you can come in, but the suitcase can't. Um, in fact, this is a theme through all the stories, is that everyone who enters has to enter empty-handed. And uh, in in this encounter, as it unfolds, the, the person with the suitcase realizes that he actually loves the suitcase more than he loves the idea of getting and going through the pearly gates into heaven. And it, as this, as with many stories, ends inconclusively, it just ends with him cradling the suitcase and singing to it, saying, I will never let you go again. Um, I I don't I am not the Lord so I don't know how that story ends <laughs> but uh but of course obviously uh, dad a lot of these stories are not um they don't actually purport to know what happens at judgment but are certainly are about um spiritual trials that we face now and I think one yeah. of them is discovering that we love what's in our suitcase more than we love the Lord and then what 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. The thief one, though, um, gives a, a possible answer to that, which is a, a similar sort of thing. This time it's a woman who is approaching the gates and um, it turns out the Lord has stolen something from her and she's outraged and demands to have it back. But this time in conversation with the Lord, when she says to him, but I love it and you're supposed to be the Lord of love, he says, but it has never loved you back. And that is her revelatory moment of realizing that this thing that she has devoted herself to has never loved her back. And she actually needed the Lord to steal it away from her before she could proceed. Yeah, I just think that that uh, kind of uh, trickster image of the Lord as one who, for our own good, steals away from us the poisons that are killing us. Uh, it's just that's a very powerful uh, image, and you work with it in that story really neatly. But uh, you know, I I don't <laughs> I don't know what happens to our loves in the in the life to come. I know it's almost the same as saying the afterlife. But I mean, can can or does God force us to stop loving things that we ought not love? Um, do does it? How does that? work and why not by fiat now if by fiat then um i uh, to me one of the reasons why i resorted to fiction is because i really don't know how to solve these things but i wanted to try looking at them from a, a bunch of different angles right and i think you're exactly right to adopt a genre of fiction to explore these questions because we can't nobody can dogmatize about this uh, but now i'm going to mention one theologian who did dogmatize a little bit which I think is very helpful, and that's Augustine, with his understanding of the vision of God in glory is such a beauteous sight that it, uh, the believer will behold it in such a state of rapture uh, that it will become uh, non passe peccare, impossible ever again to sin, because one's lamp of the eye, one's vision, is now affixed to infinite beauty. And there's nothing that can ever deflect it again, deflect it away from that vision. And that means that all the redeemed will be captured into the heavenly city and all will be captivated by that sight of beauty in such a way that there is no possibility of disharmony or uh, uh, sin or envy or jealousy or any of the things that disrupt beloved community. Yeah, but don't you think for Augustine that that is the the vision given to those who, even if they struggle with sin, still do finally love and desire the Lord? It's not a vision that that fixes or overcomes those who are determined to turn away. Augustine certainly robustly holds out the possibility of great numbers of the damned. But you write a story called Oh No about a man who spent his life Uh, defaming the Lord and rejecting his ways and his people. And how does it end? Well, it ends by him attacking Christ and actually boring right through his body, through his heart and falling out the other side into the, into the heavenly city. Yeah. Well, I'm not Augustine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But you have, you have Christ the mediator, even at the pearly gates who is dealing with a rejectionist, someone who's spent a lifetime rejecting him and his ways, who nevertheless enters by his blood. Is that how you put it? Do you love all those who hate you? Them most of all, says the Lord. Then I should find more of my kind here, 
You will. And the man walked into the heart of the city. <laughs> That's a fine little story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Actually, another one similar uh, in spirit to uh, to that one you, you told um, the to the Oh No story is one called The Crowd, in which it's actually an apostle challenging the Lord that he's let a whole crowd of people come in together who you uh, infer have been slaughtered on account of their Christian faith. And the apostle points out, well, some of them were too young to know that they bore your name or to believe in you. But the Lord says, nevertheless, my name was upon them and they died for it. They're going to come in. And so the apostle relents. But then the apostle says, well, some of them in the moment of crisis cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They lost faith in you at the last moment. How can you let them in now? And Christ responds to the apostle. When they said that, they were quoting me. And if my father vindicated me, will I not also vindicate them? And then the apostle relents. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I like those kind of stories the most. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, I do too. And that's probably where my my uh, strongest um, Christological antidote to, to popular things come in. But, you know, Dad, we talked in our Wrath of God episode that, you know, we can't we can't in good conscience and faithfully as theologians simply assert as a, a final and resolved thing that all people will come to love God in the end. Right. We certainly hope for it. We pray for it. We we do assert that is what the gospel intends, but there does seem to be this possibility held out in the scripture that there are those who not just break the law, but who actually despise grace and cannot be persuaded to let go of their of their sins or of their own righteousness. And so I I I felt I don't know, honor honor bound to also tell stories of those who ultimately well not ultimately, because nothing is ultimate in these stories, but who provisionally it seems, even in the life to come, whatever that could possibly Possibly mean, and I'm not making any dogmatic claims about it. You know, decide that they do prefer their own sins or their own righteousness to what the Lord has to offer. I, and I think that's what's so interesting about all the little stories that you tell, because you never indulge in the cheap grace idea that going to heaven when you die is an easy answer to the problems of pain and suffering and death. That's not how heaven is working for you in these stories. Heaven and the pearly gates is actually a question about the moral transformation that occurs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he repeats it like a refrain, and we shall be changed, and we mm. shall be changed, and we shall be changed. And I think Augustine really put his finger on what that change is, non passe peccari. The change mm. is such that we will not again be able to sin. And that's a moral transformation. Uh, and these all of your characters that encounter the pearly gates, the question before them is, is what is the relevant kind of transformation that is signaled by their actually passing through the pearly gates? Would you buy that interpretation? Again, I'm no literary critic. I'm just... Doing my best here. 
You're, you're doing great, Dad. You're a theological critic, and that's more relevant here. And may I point out, you wrote a book that took place in purgatory. That was fiction. So, okay, it's not just me here. But uh, no, I would say that what I realized by the time I was done with these 30 stories is that what I was trying to, if you just want to draw it up in a simple theme, it's that uh, love and truth cannot be separated from one another. And um, those who claim love and refuse to acknowledge the truth cannot proceed. And those who claim truth and are lacking in love cannot proceed. But those who are finally willing to be open to both and accept whatever those bring to them, and in, you know, in many of these stories, it's shattering what it brings to them. Uh, the, the other side of that is, is, is final reconciliation. And I think there's a lot of um, popular... Popular theological movements in broken Christianity that are love without truth or truth without love, and that just can't be right. Uh, you know, as Paul says, speak the truth in love. You you just you can't have one without the other. The fact that we can conceptualize them differently is probably itself part of our our fallen condition. There should not be any any animosity between love and truth. But that is that's that's what sin sin makes it possible to at least logically, if not truly, divide those two. So these stories, I guess, are about knitting love and truth back together or refusing refusing that knitting back together. Yeah, that's really food for thought. Very good. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope that's uh, enough to uh, at least uh, intrigue <laughs> listeners to take a look at the stories. The uh, The first three you can download for free off of thornbushpress.com and you can order it in uh, uh, ebook, paperback, hardcover, and hopefully later this fall, I will also have an audiobook if you would like to listen to them instead. Well, thanks, Dad. I know that uh, fiction is not exactly your forte, and weird theological fiction, not exactly your forte, but uh, thanks for giving it a try. <laughs> I, I was happy to, and uh, you're right to chastise me for actually having explored this genre of purgatorial <laughs> literature. <laughs> yeah. What is it? Two Lutherans writing stories about this uh, ambiguous place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when, you're right. Where we can't dogmatize, when we can't do doctrinal theology like we normally do, there we have to explore humanly very important questions in these poetic and fictional genres. I agree. Thank you, Sarah, for your work. You're welcome. Bye.